Titus 3, 9-15 But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we have uh, come to a text in your word that is laden with instruction for the church, um, it is important for us to be able to look at this carefully. And in fact, this entire letter that was written some 2,000 years ago is, is completely relevant to us today. So, Father, I ask that you would help me to speak faithfully and clearly and that you may be exalted in our study of this text. In Christ's name I ask, amen. Well, you may be seated, and um, this morning we're going to be concluding our study in the book of Titus. It's, uh, it's been an inspiring study for me, and of course for the four other men that uh, uh, J.D., Johnny, Ed, and Matt, to sit together with Pastor Rod and um, to study this book together. Together we've read through the entire book at least six times, just so that you're aware, out loud, we would open it up and we would read through the entire book, um, the six times that we met. And usually when we would meet, we would meet for about four hours at a time. And um, of course, on our own, we've also read through the book numerous times. And I can tell you that uh, personally for me, um, before I ended up with this thing on, uh, I would go out and exercise a little bit and I would uh, be able to... Uh, I would, I'd, basically listen to the book. I would uh, have it on my iPad there, and as I was on my little machine there, I was listening to it as um, it was playing there, and just really trying to, to spend more time reading, and then on my own, just quietly and, and uh, in my own study. And so I can tell you that we've read through this book, each of us, several times. Um, in fact, probably dozens of times. We've worked together to find the theme of this book, and we divided up the book into preaching passages as we outlined the book together. Uh, each person presented their own working outlines for their preaching passages, and we then grilled each other with questions and provided feedback. And all of this in preparation before we even started to type out our first sermon for Gateway Bible Church. And so here we are as we're kind of going through the second round of each one of us getting a chance to preach. And, and you know, I, one of the things that kind of struck me about this was that uh, we have probably taken at least twice the time, at least, okay, what it takes Pastor Rod to prepare for just one sermon that he preaches every week. And his sermons, of course, are twice as long as ours. And so um, as we kind of come to this today, I want you to understand, though, that all of this that I'm telling you is because there is a weightiness that comes with the responsibility to shepherd the hearts of God's people. And uh, each one of us, as we are preparing, we, we were thinking about that, I'm sure, that you know, there, there is a weightiness here to this. I want to make sure that I'm saying the right things. So as I've reflected on this letter to Titus, I'm really completely overwhelmed at a few things here. Uh, the first one is the enormous responsibility that Titus was given by Paul to get the churches in Crete in order and to shepherd the hearts of these new believers. In chapter 1, verse 12, their reputation is listed there. And it says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. In all three chapters of this short letter, the sins of the Cretans are spelled out. And they're spelled out clearly, and some of them repeatedly. One of which is the lack of submission to those in authority. Titus could have spent a great deal of time essentially trying to to herd cats, and we all know how well that usually turns out. However, he was charged to organize the church by putting elders in place and to preach the sound doctrine which reveals God's grace 
and then leads to acts of godliness among new believers. Shepherding, shepherding hearts with the gospel truth was what Matt covered last week in verses 1 through 8. Uh, in particular, you may remember that the gospel was clearly spelled out in verses 3 through 8. And, and to be honest with you this morning, we really can't launch into verses 9 through 11 without looking back at those verses because 9 through 11 are focused on what to do when trouble begins to brew in the church. And undoubtedly, I'm sure that many of you have seen the headlines um, and you know, through the internet or maybe um, on television, there is a variety of different things. There are a variety of different things that are happening in churches where there is trouble. So every church needs to be prepared to deal with those who deny the truth and who try to devour the sheep. And unlike, though, having maybe a disaster preparedness plan, as we're all encouraged to do since we live in California, um, what are you going to do in case disaster strikes? The church, instead, needs to be prepared to make sure disaster does not strike. That is the goal here. And so how does that happen? And first of all, I want to just let you know that uh, it happens by remaining focused on the truth. And I'm hoping I get the right button here. Okay. So, remain focused on the truth. Many of us are aware of the best method to catch counterfeiters, right? Um, it's by knowing what is authentic, what is real, what is truthful. And so, too, the church leaders who remain must be remain focused on the truth. Um, I can recall the first time that I, you know, handed somebody a $20 bill to pay for something and that they held it up to the light uh, to check to see it was authentic or not. And they took a pen and they wrote across it with this looked like a highlighter pen. And I remember just kind of thinking, what in the world are they doing writing on this dollar bill? I was still pretty young. And... Um, just realizing afterwards that they're checking to see that it's not a counterfeit. And I thought, though, you know, how do you know this? And, of course, we know that, that in the banking industry they teach them to handle what is real, okay, so that they know what is not real when it comes to them. Um, here is the truth, though, from chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. And um, I would ask you just to turn in your Bibles to Titus 3, 3 through 8. And we're going to back up just a little bit from last week. And it says there, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. There are three things that this passage tells us. The first thing that it tells us is what we were. This is the gospel message that is given to us. In verse 3 there, it says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions, pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And what a picture that is, to think that's what we were. Secondly, it tells us what he did through Jesus Christ, what God did through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who lives in us. As it says in verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And then thirdly, the third thing that we see here is what lies ahead. As it says in verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And when I think about this, I think, okay, there are three things here 
that he has been stressing throughout this book. And in fact, as, as he goes on here, uh, what it says is that there is an importance to stressing these things. It is because they are trustworthy and they are things that we can know for sure. And so, uh, friends, we've been given a trustworthy gospel. Throughout this book, this is what Paul has been telling Titus. This trustworthy gospel is our motivation for godly living. Once again, verse 8 says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But friends, not everything is profitable and excellent, is it? Paul has already warned Titus about the insubordinate. In chapter 1, verse 10, he says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. The fact is that there were many who saw Christianity as an opportunity and a vehicle to deceitfully enter and proselytize something that undermined the gospel for their shameful gain. So in chapter 3, verse 9, Paul declares to Titus, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Titus, as an elder, is instructed here to avoid the foolish person. That foolish person that wants to argue that perhaps God does not exist. To avoid the circumcision party here that wants to talk about genealogies. The factious party that declared men, women, children, and employees need not be submissive to those in authority over them. Rather, they could rationalize every behavior by manipulation of the law. And these things were creating chaos. And yet they were being touted as truth. And the result was that it took their eyes off of godly living. You know, this was not only happening in Crete. It happened in other places, though. And so, as we read this, I know sometimes it could be like, like okay, well, is it exclusive to this book? Well, it isn't. Um, I want to take you right now into some of Paul's other warnings about uh, false teachings in the pastoral epistles. Okay? And so there are some warnings that Paul gave out. And uh, the first one that I want to take you to is in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. This speaks to the idea of genealogies and, well, you know, my family comes from this line and, well, you know, we are of God's family. This was a big thing still in the church. And this is something that Paul says to Timothy. You need to address this. And this was in Ephesus. And of course, in other places as well, things were going on like this. Um, let's go to a, a second passage here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. And this one speaks about controversies and, and quarrels here. And it says in verses 3 through 5, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. And it goes on to say, in constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. What a sad way to th that people would look at this. Um, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16, and in this passage we have the threat of heresy uh, that comes out here. And it says here, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And then finally, um, I take you to 2 Timothy 2, uh, verse 23, 
another warning here as it says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. You know, um, I was thinking about this too, that Peter, of course, gives out a firm warning in 1 Peter chapter 5 as he talks about this and he says, you know what, be ready, be prepared. There are people who are out there that are going to be used by Satan to try to destroy the work of God in the church. Today we have false gospels that teach people to think that everyone is basically good and that, self, and that self-realization of this will empower them to eternal life. Maybe you, you've heard that from people before. Self-realization, it can empower you to eternal life. Uh, we have people who believe that truth is not objective, so any path you choose will take you to heaven. And there are some who deny the sufficiency of the atoning death of Christ and believe that justification is limited. Sometimes the factions or quarrels are more subtle. It may be that our personal preferences or our desires are not met, and we begin to crusade for change. Maybe the traditions we hold to secretly are beginning to spill over into our conversations with certain people. And the most important reason to avoid these types of conversations is that it undermines what God did for us when he saved us. So when you kind of put all these things together, you see how these things are really trying to subvert the gospel itself. Friends, it's my desire to avoid entertaining any person that is trying to gain an audience for those kinds of discussions. And so it must be for every elder in this church. I would ask you to pray for your elders, that they would be wise, even to the most cunning of ploys, that we would not be moved away from the trustworthy gospel as a church. And now that brings us to verses 10 and 11. It says there, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. We're going to talk a little bit about, make sure here I get us to the next page. about proclaiming knowledge of the truth. So the question becomes, how should an elder handle a person who stirs up division? Paul says, warn them that they are not proclaiming the trustworthy gospel, and therefore they must stop. In fact, it states that they ought to be warned a second time too. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17, Jesus provided similar guidelines to allow the sinner to repent while being admonished. Additionally, there were two opportunities before reporting it to the church, and even the church needed to provide an opportunity for repentance before they could be excommunicated. In fact, let me just ask you to take a look at what it says in Matthew 18, verses 15 and 17, and feel free to turn there in your Bibles. It says, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Even in the midst of being in opposition to Christ and his church, God offers the opportunity for repentance and restoration. This is what uh, I would call a unifying gospel. It is the uh, far-reaching mercy of God that implores the elders to reprove, rebuke, and correct with complete patience and teaching, as it says in 2 Timothy 4.2, and in Titus 2.15. What is very clear here is that though there is discipline that is taking place here, it is clear that God wants his church to be unified in Christ. That is the main purpose of all of this discipline. The church needs to become unified. So 
even for those who are in sin, there's an opportunity to become unified with Christ. However, Paul understands the necessity to keep the message of the gospel undefiled and pure. It is an undeniable gospel that we have been given. So when Paul tells us, make sure here. So when Paul tells us Titus uh, that after the second warning have nothing more to do with him, this too is discipline that will hopefully bring them to repentance. 1 Corinthians 5, 2 and verse 5 says that if they are unrepentant, let him be removed from among you. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, this is kind of one of those things that I looked at and I was thinking, wow, you know, when you read this verse alone, it seems rather harsh. But in the process of studying all this together, of looking at it from the perception that, you know, what God wants to do is he wants to be merciful. And he says, you know, sometimes you, when that cancer is there, you just have to cut it off and remove it. It's time to do that. It's, there's no more opportunity for uh, this person then to continue to listen to the elders and, and maybe go over it one more time. It says after a second time, this is what we're supposed to do. And it says that um, it's so that their spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. For the person who refuses to yield and repent, we must assume that they were never saved. And they must be not allowed to have an opportunity to gain an audience in the church. Such is the wording in verse 11 when it says that they are warped and sinful, meaning that, they, that from the beginning they were of a perverted mind in their thinking, and they continued to live in sin. When you look at what it says in, in uh, verse 11 there, that it says that they are warped and sinful. Warped meaning that from the very beginning, they were already this way. And that they are sinful is in the present tense, meaning that this is how they continue to live. So the only logical conclusion is that they are testifying that they are not saved, and therefore they are condemned. The undeniable gospel is found in John chapter 10, verses 26 and 28, which says, But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's an undeniable gospel that those who believe are going to say, Yes, I understand, I believe, I want to follow. Those who deny the gospel, well, it's very clear. And so that's one of the reasons why um, it says here so clearly that after warning them a second time, um, to have nothing more to do with them. I want to offer you just a, a couple thoughts here in conclusion, just as I um, finish up here with this. One is that it's very important for you to be praying for your elders here at Gateway. Um, I would ask that you would pray for our protection, uh, that you would Keep us in your prayers, um, that we would be studying the Word of God. One of the things that uh, happens in churches is that when the leadership begins to drop their guard and begins to embrace um, other things other than the Word of God as a priority in their life, uh, the church is going to then move with them. I was... Uh, my heart was broken to hear the story of the pastor that was in Alabama and uh, basically came up to speak in one Sunday and began to share the sins that had been involved in his life for the last 20 years while he's been there. Um, and he began to just talk about how um, he had taken money. He began to talk about how the um, fact was that he had slept with certain parishioners there and as he began to share those things, the, the church leadership began to uh, put things together and realize, whoa, you know, no wonder we saw these things that were going on before that we didn't necessarily approve of. And now this church has ended up in court. And they're asking a, a judge to deal with all that is happening there. It breaks my heart to think that 
the fact is that there were leaders in the church that were not paying attention to what was important, what was central here. It's easy for things to come into the church and for leaders to say, you know what, uh, I'll, uh, I'll take a look at that at some point. Or we don't want to have to really deal with it. It's oftentimes because we've not looked at the truth of the gospel and to sit down to, to keep it right in front of us. So please pray that the leadership of your church, of Gateway Bible Church, would be discerning. Pray for the protection of the leadership here and that they would be firmly established in God's word. Secondly, pray for the church. That as a church, that we would not give Satan an opportunity to fracture gateway over quarrels and self-serving piousness. There are people who may want selfish gain. Uh, and in fact, it was part of our nature, as it says, right? Before we were saved, this is what we were like. And so as a church, we need to pray that we would not give Satan an opportunity to allow us to be quarrelsome. And then thirdly, I would tell you, we need to proclaim the glorious and trustworthy gospel without shame. We need to proclaim the glorious and trustworthy gospel without shame. In the opening of this book, Paul says, I, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. His declaration of, here's what I'm here for, to proclaim the gospel, the knowledge of the truth. Later on in, in Titus there, in verses 11 through 14, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from the lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Proclaim the gospel. It's, it's very concise there. It's something that I believe that every one of us could, can speak about to the fact that, yes, at the right moment, here's what happened in my life. And here's what it looks like. In, in verses 3 through 8, which I read earlier, and I would just remind you with verse 8 what it says there, when it says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Proclaiming the trustworthy gospel without shame is profitable. It's excellent. It's the other things that we're warned about in this passage that are not excellent. They are not things that are of value.
Well, I have the great privilege of finishing off the book of Titus as Paul writes to Titus and he gives him final instructions. But I want to read again um, verses 12 through 15. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send you greeting, send you greeting to you. Greet those who love us in faith. Grace be with you all. Grace-based godliness in the life of the church is a theme we have chosen for the book of Titus. As this theme runs throughout this book, you will see this as well as Paul closes out this letter to Titus. Grace has been at the root of all that has been said by Paul, even when he instructs Titus to put elders into place and to silence those who are um, upsetting families. It is grace that enables the church to live self-controlled. As a, as it is grace that is able to change older men and young men, older women and young women. This grace then overflows into the work arena, touching the employer as well as the employee. And we will see this grace flushed out in daily lives as the church learns to honor the authorities God's had put in place. Grace is the source that enables the church to be about good works. As Paul closes this letter to Titus, he gives him final instructions and reveals his heart towards Titus. As he talks about future plans for the two of them, Paul tells Titus, as soon as I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, I want you to come to Nicopolis to spend the winter with me. Scholars believe that Paul had, had left Titus on Crete to set things in order on his second missionary journey. Second Timothy had not been yet written, and Paul had not been in Rome yet, uh, had not been imprisoned in Rome yet. As a free man, he was making plans to, send, to spend to winter with um, Titus in, the, in Nicopolis. At the time Paul is writing this letter, he is undecided whether he will send Artemis or Tychicus to relieve Titus, Titus of his post. We do not know anything about Artemis as this is the only place in scripture he is mentioned. All this, although this is the only place he is mentioned, we can conclude that Artemis was a faithful follower of Jesus Christ as, and highly respected by Paul as he is named with Tychicus and considered to be a potential replacement for Titus. In Ephesians 6, 21, it speaks about Tychicus, as Paul says, so that you also may know how I am doing I am, and what I am doing. Tychicus, my beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. Likewise, in Colossians 4, 7, Paul says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother a faithful minister, a fellow servant of the Lord. Paul speaks of Tychicus as a beloved brother, a faithful minister of the law of the Lord. 
Paul calls him a beloved brother because he knows Tychicus as they have traveled together for and working in ministry. Tychicus was also related um, Tychicus was also to relate to fellow believers what was going on in Paul's life and his situation. Paul and Tychicus had a close relationship. He would be able to relate things about Paul that others did not or would not know about his situation. Paul was therefore confident that Tychicus would share what Paul wanted others to know about him. Tychicus was a faithful friend. Have you ever taken the time to think about what would life be without close friends? To whom would you confide in when the bottom of life drops out? Who would be there to stand beside you when you are facing your deepest loss? Who would be there at your side to rejoice with you when life is going very well? You see, these are men that stood with Paul. And I want to just for a moment give you others' examples of those who stood with Paul. They had a relationship with Paul that Paul could call them friends. In Philippians 2, 19 and 24, Paul speaks of Timothy. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Timothy was a trusted friend who served with Paul in ministry. You remember the story, uh, story of Ephroditus, who searched for Paul, wanting to see how he was doing as he was sent by the Philippian church. He came close to death as, as his service to the church and his love for Paul. Philippians 2, 25-30 tells us, I have thought it necessary to send you Aphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and messenger and minister to my needs, for he has been longing for you all Longing for you all has been distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near death. But God had mercy on him, not only him, but on me also, lest I should sor have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice in seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So received him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. You see, I believe that um, Artemis, Tychicus, as well as Titus, had this type of relationship with Paul. We see that Paul is looking forward to spending the winter with Titus in Nicopolis, as he tells him to do his best to come to him there. Paul tells Titus he is planning to spend the winter in Nicopolis. Nicopolis was a common city name as it is meant, as its name means city of victory. Many times after a conquest, a city was renamed, and often it was renamed Nicopolis. 
Now, we're not quite sure which city of Nicopolis that Paul was referring to, but um, scholars believe that it was um, Epirius on the Abriotic Gulf of the Adriatic Sea that Paul was referring to. As its climate it does well in the wintertime. So we know that Paul had not yet arrived there as he is encouraging Titus to come there as he wants to spend the winter there. Paul tells us, Paul tells Titus to do his best to speed, to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. On their way. It is believed that me, it is believed that they may have been the ones to deliver this letter to Titus from Paul. This is the only place in Scripture that Zenus is mentioned, <clears throat> and, they, and we do have we do not know any information about Zenus, but it is believed that Zenus was either a Jewish uh, expert in Jewish law or Roman civil law. But again, we do not know that positively. Apollos was a follower and a disciple of John the Baptist and was given a fuller message of the gospel from Priscilla and Aquila. And Acts 18, 24 through 26 tells us, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being a fervent spirit, he knew only the baptism. Okay, I'm sorry, in fervent spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew only the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Paul asked Titus to speed Zenus and Apollos on their way. He was not saying to Titus, it is your solely responsibility to send them on their way. But he is to help make sure they have the supplies they need for their journey. You see, it was the church who was to provide the necessary funds and provisions for them. And we see this in Acts 15, 3, as well as 1 Corinthians 16 and 6. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, 16, I want to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you sent me on my way to Judea. See, it was the church's responsibility to provide those what they needed. Those who traveled from individuals' home to proclaim the gospel was responsible and, exp and expectations upon them of the early Christians to provide what they needed. Although Paul says directly to Titus to speed them on their way and to make sure they lack nothing, it was a joint effort by the church. Paul says they are to lack nothing. We see this as Paul says to Titus, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Paul is including the church as a whole to do this. This is what the church is to do as it meets the needs of the body. Paul instructs them to devote themselves to do good works as they have the responsibility to help those in urgent need. Paul says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Now, I think it's interesting. He says, let our people. Paul puts himself in the midst of that. Paul saying that it's just not your people, Titus. This is our people. This is my people. 
And Paul is instructing them that they need to learn to do this. It doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come naturally for us to give up what we have and to give it to others. We must learn to do this. Paul, in turn, looked at them as being unfruitful if they did not do this as a body. Paul viewed those who are not helping to meet the needs as being unproductive. When we think about our own lives, are we being productive? As we look at the church in America as a whole, we could ask that same question. If Paul was here today, what would he say about our churches today in America? Would he say that we are a church who are unproductive, or are we productive? Are we about good works? Or are we a a church that is unfruitful and unproductive? If we were to look at ourselves individually today, what he say about you and I? Are we productive or were we unproductive? As Paul closes this letter to Titus, he says, All who are with me send greeting to you. You get the sense that as they are, as they are writing and standing close to Paul, as he is writing this letter to Titus, they're all wanting to say hello to Titus. I get the picture as if you've ever done FaceTime with family or friends from far away, they're all trying to get in the screen because they want to say hello. I got that sense when I read this. All who with me send you greeting. As they too had a fond affection for Titus and the church in Crete. Paul says to greet those who love us in the faith, in the faith. Although Paul is unable to tell those who love him personally, he wants them to know that he is thinking about them as he asked Titus to send them greetings on his behalf. He cares about them. He wants them to know, I am thinking about you. So he says, Titus, send them greeting for me. Paul signs off by saying, grace be with you all. Paul understands that what we are as Christians is because of what God has given us, his grace. Ephesians 2, 5 and 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Without God's grace, you and I would still be lost in our sins. It is God's grace that brings comfort, even in a written letter by Paul to Titus in the church of Crete. In Titus 3, 4 and 7, Paul reminds Titus of this grace. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You and I need to be instruments of God's grace everywhere we go.
How are you doing being instruments of grace in every arena that God places you in? In the workplace, in your home. I have just a, a few closing questions to ask you to think about. When it comes to being beloved, a beloved friend to others, how are you doing? When it comes to meeting the needs of others, how are, are you doing? Are you willing to give of your time, your resources, to speed others on their way, as Paul asked Titus to do? Would you be considered a person of good works or a person who is unfruitful? Are you a person who shares God's grace whenever you come in contact with others, in person or even by letter? Does the grace of God flow out of you that others would see his grace in your life? Lord, I ask that you would touch each of our hearts today that we would be humbled by what we have learned and what we study. For you desire to grow us, to mature us. You desire us to die to ourselves, that we may live for you. We thank you for our time in Titus and how you have grown us as we have studied these passages and this book. May we be faithful to what you have called us to do. May we love the truth of your word. May we love the church in which you have established. May we be a witness to you. May others come to know you because of what you have done in our hearts. Lord, we give you praise and we give you honor in Christ's name. Amen.